Support for WABE comes from the Community Foundation for Greater Atlanta. If you love Atlanta, you can invest in the big picture. Learn more at cfgreateratlanta.org. I'm Erlon Woods. I'm Nigel Poor. We're the hosts and creators of Ear Hustle from PRX's Radiotopia. Ear Hustle is a show about life inside prison, but it's not your typical prison podcast. In this next season, we've got stories about the objects people keep inside their prison cells. About residents in a women's prison who say they want to stay there. And the most beautiful prison garden. Erlon, I will never forget it. Ear Hustle. Stories about life on the inside told by those who live it. Find Ear Hustle wherever you get your podcasts. Cloudy skies. Welcome to this Thursday edition of Closer Look. I'm Rose Scott. The number of confirmed coronavirus cases at the University of Georgia, well, it continues to rise. That's according to the school's latest count released this week. You may recall last week on the program, we reported the school was confirming 821 coronavirus cases. Now the school is reporting 1,417 positive cases since last Monday. Of that, 1,402 are students, 14 are staff, one is a faculty member. The University System of Georgia released a statement saying, quote, UGA's recent increase in positive COVID-19 tests is largely among students and appears to be a direct result of off-campus activities, the same as at other large institutions. That's according to them. Now, UGA announced Tuesday the school will increase the number of free tests available on campus to 450 per day. Meanwhile, across the state, the Department of Public Health reports there are now 287,287 cases in Georgia. Yes, that's the number, 287,287 cases right here in the state. Now, there are 25,845 hospitalizations. Of those, 4,736 are ICU admissions, and 6,128 Georgians have died due to the coronavirus. As always, this is according to the Georgia Department of Public Health. And now some big development news. The Quarry Yards, you know, that 70-acre mixed-use development that was currently being built on Atlanta's west side. The project was expected to include the city's largest park, as well as a 177-unit quality workforce and affordable housing community. And you may recall also last year, Closer Look spent time with the principal developers, Joel Bowman and Mark Teixeira of Urban Creek Partners. We're not taking away anything, you know. That's that's the beauty of Quarry Yards is we're just adding. This is this is vacant, abandoned land, so we're just adding. Number two, we believe that the opportunities and the jobs and and the input that we've gotten from the community will lift up and make you know um, will solidify the history that's been here, right? So we don't want you know great history of Grove Park and Cary Park and some of these Northwest Atlanta neighborhoods to go away. Quite the opposite. We want to solidify that history. How do you solidify that history? With better education for our kids, with better health for all of the residents, and with jobs. Well, that was then, and this is now. The Quarry Yards project has been sold for $120 million to a mystery buyer. Now, it may be the worst-kept secret, but there's speculation Microsoft might be involved. Closer Look has not verified this information, but... It is, as we say, word on the curb. Meanwhile, it's a familiar question regarding development in these west side neighborhoods. What will become of the legacy residents? Will folks be able to stay 
in their homes. Well, joining me now is Tim Cook, treasurer of the Grove Park Neighborhood Association, and T.J. Austin, our current resident of Grove Park and former president of the Neighborhood Association. Thank you both for taking the time. I really appreciate it. Thank you, Tim, let me start with you. When did you first hear of this news and your reaction? Um, I want to say it was reasonably recent. It's been this week. Um, and I actually, it was news to me when I was uh, asked about this interview about the um, Atlanta Business Chronicle article this morning. Um, I think that the neighborhood at least had a little bit of comfort over knowing who was the buyer and who was coming in and we had had talks with them. And I think we're, there's a little bit of unsettlement over, you know, throwing, being thrown back into mystery. Hmm. TJ, what about you, your reaction? And when did you find out? Much like uh, everyone else, I found out in my morning routine is to wake up and, and make a coffee and I read the business chronicle. And when I saw that the, the quarter yards had sold, uh, I was kind of dumbfounded to Tim's point uh, the neighborhood and, and, and just different entities across the uh, Northwest Atlanta, we have really invested a lot of time and energy and manpower into this, trying to create an equitable environment for this quarter yards development exclusively for Grove Park. And when I read that article about it being sold, my heart kind of sank a little bit because I, I saw it as kicking the can down the street. Um, and then the following day, and well, let me backtrack. And I immediately sent Joel a text message, uh, congratulating them on, you know, the, the, the sale and, you know, someone had a payday, uh, <laughs> and yeah. the following day, I, which was this morning, I read the, 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 the breaking news or the speculation that, um, of the potential buyer is. So, uh, to Tim's point. It's, it's, it's a little unease, unease in the environment because um, it's the unknown now. You're back to base, to base one and you're looking at, um, you know, Mark and, and Joel and Urban Creek, even with their, if the, with their um, controversy that might have surrounded them, mm-hmm. uh, at least we could put a face to the name. So as I told uh, the Grove Park Neighborhood Association President Leo LaRue this morning, I said, I don't expect Bill or Melinda Gates to walk through uh, a GPNA building anytime soon. Mm. <laughs> if, if, if the speculation is true. I, I will say that I think, uh, I couldn't ever say that, you know, there were no problems with the quarry yards, um, you know, plan and that mm-hmm. no one had any concerns over that development. Um, but we did know what we were getting, and there was um, some amount of agreement between the neighborhood and um, Urban Creek Partners on getting affordable housing and and working on some of these things that we've been working on that we've been wanting in the community for a long time. Um, I understand that it, there's the potential here to get much much more and have a way better outcome, but there is definitely a lot of work to be done in the neighborhood now once again, to, to get back to where we were at the very least. Um, and there's also obviously still the potential to lose some of what we wanted. Hmm. Um, so I think there's a lot of work to be done, but we do want to see that the, the member, the, the residents that we have uh, here today will benefit from this. TJ, I'll give the last word. Echo and Tim's point, you know, he, he said it, uh, perfectly, you know, it's, it's, 
it's time to go back to the drawing board, but the first avenue that whomever the developer might be is to really come in and get a temperature of the neighborhood. And, and, and I know that uh, with so many projects and so much development taking place within our community, it's really important for them to, for, for whomever this new partner or developer is, is to have a relationship or be that conduit to uh, the community. I will also say that it's very important for that company or, or developer to really work with the city leadership because right now, uh, Tim is, is I think they, that they uh, extended the moratorium uh, for, for Grove Park, is that, is that correct? Yes, until November. Yeah, so, you know, unfortunately, November is right around the corner, right? And that so, moratorium, and, just to be clear for our listeners, that was in terms of new development coming in? Right. Yeah. It was, it's, yeah, for 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 building, for new building permits or, or, or any new development. So in a world of, of COVID, you know, it, months tend to fly, have flown mm-hmm. by really, really quickly. Uh, so it's, it's just a... It's a very interesting dynamic and dyna- interesting time for to be, you know, just on the west side of Atlanta in, in general, but specifically Grove Park, um, because right now, Rose, you know, the price for real estate, spe- real home prices have absolutely skyrocketed. I know they're now going for 200, at least $200 a square foot uh, for any renovated home. So. You have to think about what's the impact, even this specul, even this reporting from the Business Chronicle, you know, how much more is that going to drive the price point for the Grove Park community, as well as surrounding communities like Dixie Hill and Center Hill and things mm-hmm. like that. So it's, it's, it's a very precarious time and and with, with, with leadership like the Neighborhood Association, with the Grove Park Foundation, with Paul Kids, with Westside Future Fund, and, and I know I'm leaving out a, a bunch of other uh, entities, but everyone needs to have a seat at the table, as well as with the city, to really sit down and, and think about how do we eff- effectively strategize to make this an equitable project for everyone. And I'm anxious to see what the city's feedback on this is, because mm-hmm. it almost appears as if they were left out of the uh, conversation too, <laughs> because they I'm not sure I haven't heard anything reporting from the uh, AJC on it. TJ Austin, current resident of Grove Park and former president of the Neighborhood Association, and Tim Cook, treasurer of the Grove Park Neighborhood Association. Thank you both. I really appreciate it. Thank you. Thank you, Rose. And now we turn to Deborah Edelson, who's the executive director of the Grove Park Foundation, for her reaction to this big economic development news. Deborah, thanks for taking the time as always. Good to have you back on the program. Well, Deborah, let's begin with the reaction, your reaction when you heard that uh, the project had been sold for $127 million to a mystery buyer. Uh, Wow. Um, $127 million in Grove Park for 70 acres is $2 million an acre, which is, you know, Buckhead loop prices. So Mm. I guess that A, belies the amount of money the buyer has, but B, it terrifies the community, everybody, for what, what comps does this create in, in, you know, in a struggling community, and in a struggling time. What was your relationship with Urban Creek Partners throughout this whole process? And, and I know that they had told me they were very committed and stayed in communication with all the neighborhood associations. And how was that relationship with you all? I have not heard anything from them in 
I don't know, probably close to a year. So that, that's what I can tell you. I, I don't know who else they've spoken to, but in terms of the Grove Park Foundation, we have not, we had no knowledge or any heads up or anything that this was occurring. I want to play a clip for you that I played earlier. This was from a conversation I had with Mark Teixeira and Joel Bowman last year about their commitment to the project and the community. Take a listen to this. We're not taking away anything. You know, that's that's the beauty of quarry yards is we're just adding. This is this is vacant, abandoned land. So we're just adding. Number two, we believe that the opportunities and the jobs and, and the input that we've gotten from the community will lift up and make, you know, um, will solidify the history that's been here. Right. So we don't want, you know, great history of Grove Park and Cary Park and some of these northwest Atlanta neighborhoods to go away. Quite the opposite. We want to solidify that history. How do you solidify the history? With better education for our kids, with better health for all of the residents, and with jobs. What do you think? Well, I mean, I agree in concept. Better health, education, jobs is the way to go. And we hope that the Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation will want to be a partner making that happen. I think you know that the Grove Park Foundation and other great nonprofits in the neighborhood have all been, we've been toiling and really working to try and create some equitable development here to bring back a community, bring it the resources that it's long needed and it's long been overlooked for our investment, but it has to be done thoughtfully and carefully and with balance. And so the, the fear of a Microsoft is that we don't have balance, is that we get, you know, just a tsunami um, if it's not moderated by the partners all working together. Does the fact that there is this mystery buyer, and that could be for a number of reasons, but we do know, according to the Business Chronicle and the Atlanta Journal-Constitution, that these negotiations go back to maybe March, could be even further than that. But because the mystery buyer, we don't know who it is as, as of right now, does that that's concerning for you? There's all the speculation about Microsoft and Bill and Melinda Gates, but none of this has been confirmed. No, you're right. You are right. I mean, you know, everyone thinks they have the inside track. And I've heard I've had my phone blow up the last two days with everyone says they know, you know, that, that this is the fact. Right. And I had some emails from people. I mean, I can tell you it feels to me like it's 100, you know, pretty close to 100 percent. But you're right. Until there's an announcement, there is not. But still, whoever puts one hundred twenty seven million dollars into that land is coming with an inordinate amount of firepower, investment power, economic power mm -hmm. that needs to be moderated and carefully, you know, balanced. I'm just going to keep using that word balanced so that it does not push people out. And that's, and people of good intent, you know, sometimes don't know their own market power. And so this is not to speak to anyone's intent, mm -hmm. but you know, this is a market mover and a ginormous way and we just hope that you know whoever this is will reach out and understand they have a corporate responsibility a civic responsibility to be a partner you know at this time in history whether it's because of you know all the racial unrest all the financial you know challenges the health challenges in a community that is struggling to keep itself afloat. Deborah, what have you heard from residents? You mentioned your phone blowing up, emails. 
What's the tone of the neighborhood right now, particularly as it relates to Grove Park after hearing of this news? I think there's a lot of anxiety is what I would say. And I share it, you know, anxiety about is this good for is this good for us, bad for us and everything in between. Some are scared, some are angry, some are hopeful and they say they're bringing jobs. And I get that, too. I hope there are jobs coming. We all do. But will these be jobs that this neighborhood can avail themselves of? Or are these going to be jobs for people, you know, that are going to be, you know, not tailored in any way to this, the ability of this community to participate. And will this entity make an effort to do job training and to maybe reach into the high schools and to have a scholarship program, right? There are so many ways to be a good partner, right? There's, there's education programs that can be supported. There's affordable housing programs that can be supported. There's job training, there's financial literacy. There's so many ways, right? We have a main street that needs to be revived. There's a food desert, all these issues. So look, until we know who they are, you're right. We're all speculating to some degree, but we know someone's coming with a lot of resources and they're gonna be a market mover. And so we have to, I guess, appeal to their their better side and, and hope that they they see that and they know what their, what neighborhood they're, they're, they're engaging with and they're stepping into. We shall all wait and see. Deborah Edelson, Executive Director of the Grove Park Foundation. Thank you so much for taking time. I really appreciate it. Thank you, Rose. Appreciate what you do. Support for WABE comes from the Community Foundation for Greater Atlanta. You can go beyond giving to impact. Learn more at cfgreateratlanta.org. The field of mental health counseling is growing rapidly, and Richmond Graduate University can equip you with everything you need as a licensed professional counselor while integrating your faith into your clinical practice. Programs are offered in Atlanta, Chattanooga, and online. Apply today at richmont.edu. That's R-I-C-H-M-O-N-T dot E-D-U. And Closer Look continues now here on 90.1 WABE. This is Atlanta's Choice for NPR. I'm Rose Scott. We all know every 10 years the federal government sets out to count every American household. We all know this as the U.S. Census. Now the count is used to decide where and how to distribute federal funding and to reapportion the U.S. House of Representatives. For that reason, local leaders, including Atlanta Mayor Keisha Lance Bottoms, well, they've all been urging residents to participate. The federal government uses census data to decide our representation in Congress and how much money is returned to communities like ours to support essential things such as schools, public transportation, and public safety. So make sure that you fill out the census. Get counted so that ATL counts. Thank you. Mm, Nice music. Now, counting the population may seem like a straightforward task, However, this year, it's been anything but. Just this week, a federal judge temporarily blocked the Trump administration's desire to end the census count a month early. This came after the Census Bureau announced the agency would end counting efforts on September 30th, much earlier than originally planned. The Bureau says the date was changed due to the coronavirus. What does all this mean for this year's count right here in the Atlanta area? Well, joining me now from the WAB newsroom is reporter Roxanne Scott. She has been on the census beat with all the latest developments. Roxanne, welcome to the program. Thanks for having me, Rose. Let's begin here. At this time, is it clear, barring any other legal 
challenges. The deadline for the census count will be originally scheduled. Well, uh, no, it's not clear. So civil rights organizations have sued the Census Bureau for moving up the timeline to September. Federal judge says for now the Census Bureau needs to keep counting people. And we'll find out more later this month um, what will come out of that case if the Census Bureau does have to continue counting or if they can end wrap things up September 30th. Pre-pandemic, counting was supposed to end um, the end of July. But because of the pandemic, the Census Bureau said it needed more time. So that was extended until October. But the Census Bureau moved that deadline to September 30th. So even though the census has suspended operations a bit because of the pandemic, and census officials themselves said that they needed more time to complete the census, even to the point where they asked Congress for an extension, um, they still ended up moving up the deadline, um, cutting it a month short. So let's be clear on this. Is Congress the only authoritative body that can change the date for the census? Yes, from from um, people that I've spoke to, that is um, that is something that the Congress can can do, can change that date. Not the and president. The, not the president. It's it's the Congress. Yes. Any idea why the Trump administration wanted to fast track this deadline? Well, um, it is mandated that the census needs to deliver um, census numbers by the end of the year to the president, so by December 31st. And so, you know, um, in order to do that, the census needs to kind of wrap things up. Now, again, the census was worried about this and asked for a deadline. um, And those accounts, if the census had gotten those wishes, that count would have been delivered in April 2021. But, you know, as we know, we may have a different president in April. Mm -hmm. And so um, it looks like that, you know, that the census wants to keep on track with delivering estimates by the end of the year. So Roxanne was the main reason because obviously with the coronavirus, you didn't want folks going door to door, you know, census takers, Obviously, their health and, and concern, and and for the folks who would be answering the doors or, or the households, that was the main reason, correct? Yeah. So the census suspended operations because of the coronavirus. Um, they wanted to make sure that people would be safe, including the workers. I know now they are following sense uh, CDC guidelines with. Um, PPE, masks, hand sanitizer, and whatnot. But that is the reason why the census originally suspended operations was because of the coronavirus. Let's shift for a moment and talk about efforts here locally. I played a clip with Atlanta Mayor Keisha Lance Bottoms. And I know back in May you reported Atlanta's response to the census count was only at about 50%. To your knowledge, has this improved at all? So um, from uh, the self-response rate, it improved a bit. Um, It got up to about 57%. But now remember, door knockers are underway. So even though um, as of now, only 57% have self-responded to the census, Mm -hmm. um, door knockers are now trying to catch those people up. So I can tell you statewide, um, about 80% of households have been counted, but that includes all the door knocking efforts. And even within that 80%, there are areas that are still they're behind on those door knocking efforts because they already had a self-response, a low self-response rate to begin with. And those areas include parts of Metro Atlanta, mm-hmm. um, the west side of Atlanta, for example, parts of the cab, parts of Gwinnett, 
um, and a big problem in southern and middle middle Georgia as well. Wow, I'm curious then, how does the state of Georgia compare to not only other states in the South, but in the nation, any idea? Well, the self-response rates that I've seen, um, about 60% of Georgians had self-responded to the census. I mean, that still means though that about four out of 10 households did not fill out the census. So Mm -hmm. now when you have these door knocking efforts, that's more work for the door knockers because there's a lot of people they have to kind of um, catch up with. Um, When you compare that to states like um, West Virginia, for example, that has a higher number of people who have filled out the census, I should say. Um, And this hurts because states get federal money based on census numbers Mm -hmm. for federal programs, for schools, for hospitals, and for roads. So when a population of a state is undercounted, that means that state is going to get less money. And there's other political implications as well with the census. For example, we use census numbers to decide um, how many U.S. House of Representatives we're going to get in Georgia, right? And so in 2010, Georgia got an additional um, House member because our population grew. And so that affects the political representation we get, but also our state legislators use those numbers to draw our voting districts, Mm -hmm. our legislative districts. It also decides who your county commissioner is going to be, who your school board member is, who your city council member is. Roxanne, through all your reporting on this, any idea why folks might be hesitant to not complete the census form? I know there's always a lot of conspiracy theories out there, but you talk to a lot of folks. What have you heard? Oh, there's a lot of reasons. Um, Fear, for example, what is this used for? Where does this information go? You know, if you are a person, for example, uh, like I'll go back, for example, to renters, you know, maybe you have more occupants in the house than you're supposed to. And maybe you believe that this information goes to your landlord. It doesn't, right? Census information is confidential. Um, And so, and so, you know, there's a fear that, you know, I don't know where this information goes or, or confusion, misconceptions of what the information is used for. Um, For example, if you are undocumented and you think that this information is going to go to ICE, um, it can't go to ICE. Mm -hmm. Um, So that's another reason. Um, Going back to, um, for example, the Trump administration tried, so many listeners may know this, that they tried to get a question about citizenship on the census. Now, that didn't happen, but because of the attention around that effort, many people may still think that there's going to be a citizenship question on this and you know that can compromise their status or if they're able to live in the United States. And that's not true. Um, The census cannot share individual information about people. It can share demographic information, Mm -hmm. but it cannot share person X lives here and it it can't share that information. We know that according to the Urban Institute, look, Georgia is one of the states most at risk for an undercount in 2020. And that's based on everything that you just said, why it was so important. And the the groups that the Census Bureau has traditionally undercounted, it still includes Roxanne renters, immigrants, black Americans, and also has a growing problem of counting children under five years old. Georgia had one of the highest undercounts of young children. 
That's right. These are groups that the census traditionally undercounts, even in a non-pandemic year. They traditionally undercount um, some people of color, Black Americans, for example, immigrants, renters, the poor, marginalized groups. And so when you have this now 2020, where there's a pandemic, operations stopped, then they restarted. Now there's a shortened timeline. Um, a lot of these groups are concerned that, yeah, we're going to undercount people again, and that's going to have political implications and and how much money that the that the state gets. And um, one thing is that the census, while it does traditionally undercount these groups of people, it tends to slightly overcount the white population or older people. And there's a variety of reasons for that. What do you mean by and overcount? So, for our so, yeah, for example, um, say you are a homeowner, say you own two homes, right? Mm -hmm. And maybe um, earlier in the year, you were at one home, right? You filled out the census there, and then you went to your second home, for example, and then you filled out the census there as well. So now you're counted twice, right? This also kind of goes with sometimes children who work, who um, have, who, um, children who kind of divide their time among two parents, mm -hmm. for example. Maybe one parent is going to, you know, if they always fill out the census, they're going to fill out the census for that child. And then, the you know, the other parent is going to do that as well. And that tends to happen with, with white people. And we should note, too, every time there's a census count, I'll have folks who say, well, I'm a renter, so I don't need to complete the form because I don't own the house I rent. And that needs to be cleared up for folks. It's not about whether you own or rent. It's about are you in existence in a sense? That's what folks want to know. Are you here? Are you breathing? Yeah. Are you living? That's right. The census is um, constitutionally mandated to count everyone living in the United States. It does not matter if you rent your home, you own your home. It's especially important for renters since they're undercounted anyway. Um, it doesn't matter your immigration status, if you're a citizen, non-citizen, or even undocumented. If you live in the United States, you are mandated to fill out the census. Now, will you get prosecuted? That's very rare, mm -hmm. but everyone should be counted, anyone, everyone living in the United States. Roxanne, here's a question for you. What about those who are unsheltered or our, our homeless population? How are they counted? Any, any idea on that? All right. So earlier this year, uh, that that count was also moved because of the pandemic. And so about two or three nights, um, the census census workers will go out to where um, to go to parks, to go to tent cities, um, for example, to go to shelters to get a count of this population, those experiencing homelessness. Now, because of the pandemic, that deadline has been moved mm -hmm. quite a bit. So there was a time we didn't know when it was going to happen, um, but the Census Bureau announced this week that they that count is underway again. And as we wrap up, just for clarity, as we mentioned at the beginning of this conversation, that the new census date was still kind of up in the air. Um, do you know what comes next if it changes again? Um, I have no idea. I'll be looking for that towards that um, that date. What happens at that um, with that case if the census? will be able to continue counting people if they are allowed to keep their deadline of September 30th. So I'll I'll be waiting along with everyone else. Nothing like waiting for a federal court or Supreme Court to weigh in. 
From our WAB newsroom, Roxanne Scott, no relation. If she was, that'd be okay, too. Thank you for all your work covering this issue. We really appreciate it. Thanks for having me. And Closer Look continues now here on 90.1 WABE. Atlanta's choice for NPR. I'm Rose Scott. It was the night of June 12th, earlier this summer, the day of the shooting death of Rashard Brooks, and then later, the death of eight-year-old Sequoia Turner. Now, all this happened near the intersection of several South Atlanta neighborhoods. And following both of these incidents, members of the surrounding community came together. They were calling for change. You might recall residents from MPUV created a list of demands to, quote, divest in policing and reinvest in communities. MPUV actually has a gun-related violence problem. So this incident is isolated because it was police involved, but it is not that isolated because we do experience a high amount of gun-related violence. Now, MPUV includes the neighborhoods of Peoplestown, Mechanicsville, Summerhill, Pittsburgh, Adair Park, and Capitol Gateway. And after that conversation, I also spoke with other South Atlanta community members. They raised concerns about communication within their district as a whole. We have three different city council within one particular MPUV. Mm-hmm. So it does make it hard for, out in that respect, for maybe to connect everyone and also to adhere to everyone. I hope to see that when these redistricting happens, that it'll be more, it'll connect us more and not so be so gerrymandered and not so to the point where now we we're lumped into Midtown. Hmm. Now we're continuing the conversation and expanding to other neighborhoods in this part of town. I recently had a conversation with residents and members of NPUY and NPUZ. Now, the NPUY neighborhood is considered 10 neighborhoods strong. It's Amal Heights, Betsmar La Villa, Chosewood Park, Inglewood Manor, High Point Estates, Joyland, Historic Lakewood Heights, Park Place South, South Atlanta, and the villages at Carver. Now, NPUZ includes these neighborhoods, the Lakewood Browns Mill Community, Norwood Manor, Rebel Forest Stonewall Heritage, and the Thomasville Civic League, as well as Swallow Circle. So all those neighborhoods. So joining me now are members of NPUY and NPUZ. We have Shirley Nichols, NPUZ's vice chair, Michael Fears, an NPUZ community member, Chris McCord, NPUY chair, and Gloria Hawkins-Wynn, NPUY community member. Thank you all for taking the time. I really appreciate it. Absolutely. Honored to be here today. Thank you so much for having us and having the fortitude to have a, a conversation about this topic. All right. Let me start with, uh, actually, let me start with Shirley Nichols. How long have you been in your neighborhood? Uh, in this neighborhood, 45 years. Wow. Mr. Fears, how long have you been a, a resident in your neighborhood? Uh, my family moved into Norwood Manor in 1956. Wow. Gloria Hawkins, when? What about you? Yes, ma'am. Uh, approaching 20 years. Mr. Fears, how long have you been in your community? I've been there since 1956. Let me stay with you for a moment, Mr. Fears. 1956. Tell me about the community when you moved in. When I first moved in, it was a community of young families, lots of kids. 
running around, and we attended at that time. It was Thomasville Elementary School. And as the years went by, we were honored enough to rename our elementary school to John Wesley Dobbs. Mm -hmm. And one of his daughters actually came to the dedication. That was in the early 60s. So it was a community of people. We had school teachers. We had postal workers. We had railroad workers. Basically, a middle-class neighborhood. As the years have gone by, Mm -hmm. the nature of the community has changed. A lot of the original homeowners are no longer with us. We have about 150 homes. and In recent years, we added a 216-unit apartment complex to the area. But I may have about seven or eight of original homeowners still living in the in the community. And a lot of our folks are now renters. I want to go around, and you heard what Mr. Fear said. Miss Gloria Hawkins, when, when someone says to you, tell me about your community now, what do you say to them? Diamond in the rough, that uh, we are strategically located to all the major thoroughfares, 7585, 285, Five minutes from the airport, five minutes from downtown in Marta. We've gone through ebbs and flows during the time period that I've lived here. But the genesis of uh, Lakewood, I would dare say, is as much with the Lakewood General Motors plant, which became defunct in the early 90s. But it was, my understanding, one of the most solid middle-class communities in all of Atlanta because folks less skilled were gainfully employed. Um, The largest fairground in the Southeast existed where now Screen Gems is. It Mm -hmm. was, but it's gone through ebbs and flows. And you can imagine as the uh, General Motors plant uh, moved out, it had a tremendous effect. Jonesboro Road goes directly down into Henry and Clayton County. And many of those folks jumped ship and moved Mm -hmm. south uh, based on the uh, departure of the anchor business in the Mm -hmm. community. Mr. McCord, what do you tell folks about your neighborhood, your community? South Atlanta has very similar amenities to Lakewood. Uh, One of the biggest things I think is different is that we have an ally and organization called FCS Urban Ministries. They are a nonprofit organization that that really focuses on neighborhood revitalization program. South Atlanta is also the home of Carver Market and what used to be Clark Atlanta University and Gammon Seminary. I am a proud Gammonite and have lived in South Atlanta for 15 years at this time and uh, not going anywhere anytime soon. Actually, I'm an investor in the neighborhood in several aspects and not just my community work, but also putting my money where my mouth is and buying property in the area as well. Chris McCord, let me stay with you. You said you're putting your, your money where your mouth is. You want to stay in the neighborhood. You want to invest in your neighborhood. Do you have concerns about your neighborhood? changing in terms of economic development and folks being able to stay there? Of course I do, but I feel that the way that our community has supported each other, I think all of our families that are currently in the neighborhood will survive mostly. Uh, the Beltline is a project that I'm really excited about. It's going to give us an opportunity to revitalize some of our parks. Park Pride has been doing an amazing job giving us support for three of our parks in MPUY. I'm really looking forward to some of the projects that are going to be coming up with those three parks. Those three parks, in my opinion, are South Bend, also Chosewood Park, as well as South Atlanta Park. Hmm. Mr. Fears, what concerns do you have for your neighborhood? You've been there for a long time. Right now, we're not suffering from any kind of dis- displacement. We don't have huge interest of gentrification moving into our neighborhood. 
Norwood Manor is also the home to Southview Cemetery. Mm -hmm. So we've got some heritage there in our neighborhood as well. But our greatest concern right now is we don't have a lot of crime in our neighborhood either. In the 64 years that my family has been in the, in the neighborhood, we've had two young men were murdered a few years ago and a store clerk was murdered. Mm -hmm. But short of that, we don't have a real big issue, not a lot of break-ins. It's really a quiet community. Ms. Nichols, what about you? What concerns do you have for your community? Any? Uh, I kind of piggyback on what everybody else is saying because our neighborhood's like right in the corner, uh, Clayton and DeKalb County. And we kind of like I hear by ourselves, you, when you're here, you don't really know you're in the city of Atlanta. Hmm. But uh, we and it's a nice, quiet neighborhood. And like Mr. Fierce said, we don't have a lot of crime either. Of course, Jonesboro Road runs right down between our neighborhood, too. So does 285. Mm -hmm. But I've seen it transition over the years. We began out here probably in about the early 70s with white flight, which is how most of us moved into the neighborhoods. But uh, we're con I guess our main concern is economic development. <laughs> we have a lot of uh, vacant land, probably more land, vacant space than any other community in the city of Atlanta. And so now we see developers really looking at our community and so we have to be on top of what's going on, make sure that we know what they're bringing in, make sure it, it, it fits in, complements what we already have. So uh, economic development is top of the list. We also have to make sure that we are on top of code enforcement. Mm. Uh, we want to make sure that the neighborhood remains safe. Uh, there are elements of things that creep in every now and then, but for the most part, it's quiet and safe and uh, we do, we, it's an older neighborhood. Mm -hmm. So a lot of our neighbors are passing away and uh, young people are not really moving back into the community, but there's a lot of uh, investment going on, people buying property over here and redoing the houses. So there probably maybe one or two dilapidated houses in the whole community of over 600 houses. Mm. So it's, it's looking good. But uh, it's also bringing in a lot of people who are not owners. And so um, we want to make the people, we, it, it's an effort for us to try to get those people to kind of buy into what a neighborhood really is. Hmm. Gloria Hawkins Wynn, you're the Lakewood Heights president. Uh, tell me about Lakewood. And I want to focus on blight. Do you all have an issue with a lot of blighted properties in your community? I think less so than we did uh, 10 years ago. Uh, mm -hmm. Again, the economy has gone in ebbs and flows. In the early 2000s, we saw a significant buildup and then the recession set in. And um, I say what, from 08 to 14, uh, there was blight, but uh, there was a shift, shift as of 2015. In fact, every, my husband and I bought the house we currently live in, we were gonna invest in renovation or take the 50,000 and buy this house that cost $225,000 only four years earlier. And that's what we did. The, the fallback was every house in the block in front of us was, uh, there was blight. Mm. That those folks that jumped ship, they were upside down. 
And with that came all of the other things that people are in a depressed economy are dealing with. So, but that has changed. My son recently uh, stopped by and said, hey, mom, this is starting to look like Mrs. Mrs. Mr. Rogers' place. Because <laughs> indeed, because indeed, uh, all of those houses have been uh, very nicely renovated. We've got Mr. Ali, Omar Ali, who has come to our community and has developed a heart and has been one of the few developers that we think that wants to anchor and is really wanting to be a part of Lakewood's transformation. Mm -hmm. So uh, like, I think I heard the statistic earlier that at least within the last seven years, 70% of the residents in the Southeast Quadrant are, rent are renters and uh, Lakewood is not exempt. We're hoping that the city and the powers that be will look more towards bringing balance helping those yeah. become homeowners because with that vested interest uh, comes, a, a, we think, a very clear wanting to see things thrive. Well, let me stay with you for a moment, Ms. Hawkins-Wynn, because you just mentioned you hope that the city and the powers that be, so you all have city council members who represent your district. How would you assess your city council representative in, in being terms of communication and also if y'all have concerns being able to address those concerns for you all yes ma'am lakewood is divided uh between carla smith and uh george shepherd our council people district 12 and district one they have been on council for many years they sat during the time of um of uh, mayor bottoms being a council person and i think it's those relationships and those connections oftentimes that are very important in what they're able to do for us. Uh, both our council people uh, head some very, very important committees. What, what have been the manifestation of some of what they've been able to do? Uh, we've been able, we are currently, I think it was 2013, um, both uh, council, Councilwoman Shepard as well as Councilmember uh, Smith, through the commission of ARC, a quarter of a million dollar grant, was able to develop a marketing plan for the greater Lakewood area. It's called the LCI, mm -hmm. the Living Communities Initiative. Mm -hmm. That is fruits of their labor. Likewise, shortly thereafter, it's in 2016, um, uh, Councilmember Smith uh, put together a census session to deal with zoning in that corridor. And we clearly have been able to prohibit certain types of businesses. Chris McCord, uh, how would you assess your, your city council member and being able to communicate with them and also addressing the needs of your, your area? Absolutely. Carla Smith and her team has been awesome. I've never had an opportunity or a chance when they've not responded to me uh, in reference to concerns for my community. Uh, just like Lakewood, uh, Carla Smith has also funded a rezoning of South Atlanta, which is the neighborhood that I live in. It also allowed us an opportunity to really kind of take a look at some of our current corporate partners that are in the neighborhood and dive into those relationships and really start building those relationships so that they are fruitful. Um, and that's been one of my biggest, um, my biggest asset for um, doing the rezoning of South Atlanta is being able to have the identifying facts of those different corporations and owners in the neighborhood. Anything in your community that you all want that you don't have or that you prefer not to have in terms of economic development? Anything you don't need? South Atlanta made an amazing switch from ownership uh, percentages. When I first moved into South Atlanta, it was about 30% uh, 30 ownership with about 
60% vacancy. Mm-hmm. Now we've gotten to a place where we're on, we're down to about 25, 30% vacancy with about 60 to 70% ownership. So we're, we're making a shift in a way that's really positive uh, as re- in reference to businesses that we don't want or uh, businesses that we want. Uh, we would love to have opportunity to take a look at things like having a pharmacy in the very near um, vicinity of our neighborhood. Uh, that's one of the amenities I think that's really pertinent. There are a few recycling facilities in our neighborhood that we'd like to see make uh, a transition to er- other areas versus being in our community. And then we're, as well as a few of, of the tire shops that are in our neighborhood. One thing that I've led for the last 11 years is a tire roundup where we've been able to remove 7,800 tires from our neighborhood in that time frame, mainly because we have so many tire companies, used tire companies in our neighborhood. They, they quite often will dump in a very close proximity to those uh, locations. Hmm. Mr. Fears, what about you? How would you assess your city council member and the relationship you, you feel you all have? Well, Carla Smith is, is our city council person, and... She has a long history associated with city council. Since she's been in there, she has been, as, as Chris said, very accessible. Anytime we have an issue or a concern, she's responsive. She works hard to try and help you resolve that issue. We have uh, SES Connected Youth Academy mm-hmm. in our neighborhood, and they just recently expanded their campus to a piece of property that once was used by MARTA to assemble their original rail cars. And it's been a blight on the community for almost 20 years. Hmm. They bought that property, built a classroom building, built a, a dining hall, and the area is starting to look well. In the process, we, we got a police-connected camera for our community not that like i said not that we have a lot of crime but at least we've got some eyes on the areas to protect us from nefarious mm-hmm. activity now the the one concern that carla and i have recently started on started on that corridor of jonesboro road to 285 has a lot of commercial development on it and I mentioned John Wesley Dobbs Elementary moving from our community. They moved across the street from uh, what used to be a trucking company. Mm -hmm. And there were several trucking companies in the area. Well, I recently discovered that all of that property across from the school, about an eighth of a mile along Jonesboro Road, has been turned into a tractor-trailer parking lot. With, and in the process of doing that, they cut down some barrier trees that separated that commercial property from our neighborhood. And as a result, we have a lot of noise of the tractor trailers coming into that property. We, we're working to try and get them to replace the barrier trees that they cut down and expand in that property. I'm just north of Miss Nichols' community mm-hmm. of South River Garden. Let's talk about South River Gardens. Uh, Ms. Nichols, your community and your Atlanta City Council representation, how would you assess it? Uh, great. Joy Shepard is our council member, mm-hmm. and I've known her for a lot of years. Uh, and so she has 
done a, a great job in working with us. She's always available. She's visible. She's always out here helping us. It, it's taken sometimes a long time for us to accomplish some things, but not because of her. It's just the way the system is in the city of Atlanta. Now, as you all know, one neighborhood may experience this challenge. A nearby neighborhood may have another challenge. There are a lot of neighborhoods in the southeast and, and southwest part of Atlanta. As we wrap up, you all are longtime community members. So if there is some advice or suggestions that you all have for other communities, they don't feel the same way. Ms. Nichols, I'll start with you as we wrap up. I think individually people have to realize that their agenda may not be the agenda for the majority of their neighborhoods. And that city council person has to look at on both sides. And we have an opportunity to elect our officials, our representatives. That's where you make the difference when you go and vote. But they have to listen to more than just you. So when we come together and unite and start working for the good of the whole community and not our own little personal agendas and desires, I think it works better on both sides. Mr. Fears, what about you? Well, one of the things that people have to realize is that you have to get out and be active in your community. If there are issues that you that are the city's responsibility, then you've got to be willing to do the hard work, get out, and as John Lewis said, make some good trouble. Mr. McCord, suggestions? Well... Absolutely. So I would say no matter your challenges or your celebrations, that you remain positive. And just remember that relationship building is probably going to be your biggest tool for any type of advocation. You got to make sure that that relationship is in a good place and you got to build that relationship. So that, that would be the advice I would give. Stay positive and focus on building the relationship. Gloria Hawkins, when your suggestion? And can you understand the frustration from some of the other neighborhood associations because they have different issues maybe than you all have. Oh, yes, ma'am. Um, I think what I notice more than anything is um, you get what you put in and uh, having an organized group, a community group that feeds in the issues. And as I've heard everybody else say, have action items. Unfortunately, what I think one of the caveats in my community is we've got a, a lot of new young professionals who moved in and they only have so much time. The more people you have at the table supporting um, the objectives, the better. But oftentimes we all know that much of the work sometimes is relegated to a very small percentage. We even know from our police officers, a strong neighborhood watch program motivates their engagement with the community because it takes all hands on deck. So I'd say the last five to six years of new, new homeowners and many of them are young professionals and we've got more of them at the table who have the bandwidth to, again, help us uh, move things forward. And they are moving. Uh, again, I don't know if we are in the same place as my three um, colleagues because we've had some challenges. We've had some specific challenges related to just the, the high vacancy rate. So we're on the move. And as I said earlier, we're a diamond in the rough. Mm. Gloria Hawkins Wynn, Chris McCord, Michael Fears, and Shirley Nichols, longtime community members tied to their community. Thank you all for taking the time. I really appreciate it. Thank you for being a part of this conversation. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you.
Rose. Absolutely. Honored to be here today. Y'all still need a grocery store over there. Oh, yeah. Food desert. <laughs> yes. <laughs> I still need a grocery store. It's coming. It's coming. Are you sure? Yeah, it's based on density. And, I know. Uh, I know. Uh, thanks. Thanks for, um, thanks for looking at us. That's it for this edition of Closer Look, which is produced by Grace Walker and LaShawn Hudson. Our engineer is Shelly Canavy. If you missed any of today's program, it's online at wabe.org slash Closer Look. And of course, you can listen to Closer Look weeknights at 8 p.m. And listen whenever you want, because Closer Look is now available as a podcast. Just visit NPR One or your favorite streaming app and subscribe. This is 90.1 WABE, Atlanta's choice for NPR. I'm Rose Scott. Hi, it's Terry Gross, the host of Fresh Air. We bring you in-depth, long-form interviews with actors, directors, musicians, authors, journalists, and more. Listen to our Peabody Award-winning Fresh Air podcast from WHYY and NPR. The Gold Dome Scramble podcast is now plugged in, a WABE politics podcast. New name, same on-the-ground reporting from us, WABE politics reporters Sam Greenglass and Raul Bally. We'll cover local, state, and national politics as we talk to politicians and voters to break down each week's biggest headlines. New episodes drop on Fridays. Listen and subscribe at WABE.org or your favorite podcast platform. WABE.